So, as we've been studying over the last several weeks, this whole chapter is focused on this theme that Jesus is the bread of life. Even the feeding of the 5,000 is related to that theme and that Jesus intended it to be a sign of this theological truth that Jesus gives us Himself to be our bread which leads to life, which gives us life. This is the main theme of this chapter. He does the sign and then He explains the sign. That's basically the structure of this chapter with the exception of the interlude where Jesus walks on water in the middle of the night. That's basically what this entire chapter is about. The most important point of review for the purposes of our study today, however, is that when Jesus comes, pardon me, when the crowds come to Jesus in verses 22 to 26, looking merely for literal physical bread, Jesus does not turn them away altogether. We looked at that in length a number of weeks ago. Literally all these people want is a loaf of bread. If Jesus were to just multiply the loaves and the fish again and send them away, they would be happy. That was literally all they were looking for. They were not interested in who Jesus was. They were not interested in His identity as the Messiah. They were not interested in the bread of life. They literally just wanted physical bread. That was what they were after. Many of us would likely take offense at this and turn people away altogether. Like when that person who phones you every now and then, only when they need something. Or that friend from school years ago who reconnects with you and you think that they're just trying to strike up a uh, friendship with you and then all of a sudden now they're talking to you about their business and you know how you can be involved in investing in their business and so on. And, so on. and you realize they're just using me. They're literally just using me. This is what these people are doing with Jesus. But Jesus doesn't hang up the phone, so to speak. Jesus doesn't send them away altogether. What Jesus does is offer them better bread. Look at verse 27. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures. And so Jesus says, you're coming to me for perishable bread. Instead, let me speak to you about enduring bread. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Implicitly, the bread that perishes leads to temporal life as opposed to eternal life. So the contrast here is between perishable perishable bread that leads to temporal life, on the one hand, and enduring bread that leads to eternal life, on the other hand. They come for perishable bread, which leads to temporal life. That is all they want. But Jesus doesn't say, you're just using me, go away. He says, let me give you something better than that. You've come to me for perishing bread that leads to temporal life. Let me give you enduring bread, which leads to eternal life. This is like, you go into a shop looking for a bicycle and the shop owner says well I'll sell you a car for the same price as the bike he's, he's doing you something better 
And it would not be sensible to say, well, no, no, I really came here for a bicycle. <laughs> Unless you're trying to save gas and get some exercise. <laughs> but you can see here that what Jesus does is not actually is not actually give them less than what they're looking for. Jesus actually very graciously, very graciously offers to give them even more than they were looking for. Remember that the metaphor of bread is about life and death, not quality of life. So this is not about improving your life by adding Jesus. The way that a morning gets better if you might have a fresh croissant from a bakery. This is not like your life is okay, but if you add Jesus, the bread of life, it's just that much better. It's an improvement. This is, without Jesus, you will starve to death. And with Jesus, you will have the nourishment that you need to live. This is the thrust of the metaphor, because that's how bread functioned in the ancient world. It was a staple of life, as opposed to uh, a luxury on top of an already adequate diet. Jesus is teaching these people, here in this passage, that just as you need physical, perishable bread for your temporal life, and if you don't have that bread, you will die, so you need me for eternal life. You need to eat and drink of me. Which means, as he explains, as this passage goes on, believe in me, trust in me, take of me and eat and drink of me, so to speak. He's speaking metaphorically. Eat and drink of me. The way that you trust that this bread will give you life and so you ingest it. So you partake of it. So you take a share in it. You claim a share in it. You take a piece and rip it off and take it in. So claim a share in me. Grab hold of me. Take me in and your souls will live. You will have eternal life. This is what Jesus is trying to get across to these people in John chapter 6. On the heels of Jesus' extended teaching on this glorious truth, we read these sad words at the end of John chapter 6 and verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Jesus had encouraged them, instead of pursuing perishable bread that leads to temporal life, put in the effort required to get the enduring bread that leads to eternal life. Many of these people could not be bothered to work for the food that endures to eternal life as Jesus had instructed them to do in verse 27. By way of reminder, again we covered this in depth a couple of weeks ago, but we must distinguish between effort and earning. The gospel allows for no earning. You cannot earn eternal life. You cannot earn the bread from heaven. 
You cannot earn Jesus. You can never pray something like this, Lord, I deserve for you to save me. I deserve it, Lord. After all, look at how hard I'm working. I'm earning it. I merit eternal life. I merit your grace. I have earned your grace. As we read later on in Romans, if that was the nature of the gospel, it would no longer be grace. Grace would no longer be grace. By definition, you cannot earn grace and the gospel is all of grace. And so no one can earn the bread of life. So when Jesus says, work for the bread which endures to eternal life, what He's not saying is, earn it. Be good enough. Demonstrate to God your worthiness so that He might give you the bread which endures to eternal life. That is not the sense of it. The sense of it is, Expend the effort of your life, not for that which perishes, but for that which is eternal. You will expend effort in your life. Everyone in this room will expend effort in your life. And you will either expend your effort trying to find life outside of Christ Jesus or trying to find life inside of Christ Jesus. You will either spend your life trusting in other things or you will spend your life trusting in Jesus. It cannot be any other way. And you will expend effort. You will exercise faith, in that sense, in something. You will pursue some kind of bread. Jesus is saying, don't put your effort there. Toward perishable bread, which leads to temporal life, put your effort here towards enduring bread, which leads to eternal life. We cannot earn anything but death. When it says the wages of sin is death, what that means is if you go to God and say, Pay me what I've earned. God says, away with you then to the fires of hell. Because that is all we can earn. The wages of sin is death. And all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. There is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So if you go to God and say, pay me what I'm owed, it's to the hellfire for you. But God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That, my friends, is a gift of grace, not a paycheck. The human race did not deserve that. The human race did not earn that. But notice that it says, Whosoever believeth. And believeth implies action. God, as we know, must work in our hearts. We read in John chapter 3, the same chapter that that verse is drawn from. 
God must give us the new birth before we can even see the kingdom of God, let alone enter it. And so we know that there's this prerequisite work of God in our hearts to regenerate us in order that we might see the kingdom of God, perceive the identity of Christ Jesus, the Messiah, and believe in Him. And in that sense, faith is a gift, as you hear people say sometimes. But listen, it's not a gift in the sense that you're passive in the act of faith. It's not a gift in the sense that God believes for you. You are not saved because God believes in Jesus the Messiah. We must exercise our faith. We must believe in Jesus Christ. There is a gift of grace. We cannot earn it. But we must apply effort in the reception of it. We lay hold of Christ by faith. And that takes effort. Not earning, but effort. And getting the better bread then, coming back to John chapter 6. Getting the better bread that Jesus offers. We need to note, does take effort. Work for the bread which endures to eternal life. The words of Jesus. Work for it. What we see here, after this, many of His disciples turned back and no longer walked with Him. They were not willing to put in the work of getting that better bread. Mere following of Jesus at the beginning of John chapter 6, merely just tagging along with Him, literally following Him, resulted in literal bread at the beginning of John chapter 6. For these people. They put in a little investment. They followed Jesus for an afternoon. And they got literal bread. Jesus then says. Look. There's better bread. This is the work involved. That you believe. This is the work involved in having eternal life. Take. Eat. This is my body broken for you. So to speak. Lay hold of me by faith. If you just literally follow me around, you're not going to get the better bread. To get the better bread, you must believe. You can't miss it. It's repeated so many times in John chapter 6. Believe, 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 believe. Whoever believes, whoever believes. Eat my flesh, drink my blood, which we have discussed in depth over the last couple of weeks. It means nothing different than to believe. Believe and you have eaten. Faith. This greater investment than just merely just following Jesus around. This greater investment. Faith. Is required for getting the better bread. And many of these people couldn't be bothered to put in that extra work. Why was it hard for the crowds? Why was it hard for the disciples? Listen as I read from Luke chapter 8, verse 11 and following. 
Jesus has just taught the parable of the sower. You remember a farmer goes out to scatter the seed. Some falls here and some falls there. Jesus explains the parable as follows. Luke chapter 8 beginning at verse 11. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while and in a time of testing fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. And their fruit does not mature. As for that, in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. I'm not going to exposit that parable in great depth this morning, but the takeaway from that for the purposes of our study this morning is this. Our path along which we walk is strewn with obstacles. And there are many difficulties presented to us. Many challenges to our faith as we go along in the Christian life. As that old song says, just as I am. Fightings and fears within, without. You see here in this parable of the sower, the devil comes and takes away the word. Well, that's without. That's from outside of you. There's these problems from outside. These disciples certainly would have had to wrestle with the fact that they would be ostracized by others if they continued to follow Jesus. As the majority of this crowd voted with their feet, so to speak, and left, those who remained had to wrestle with the fact that they would be ostracized if they stayed. So there's that external pressure. And then, of course, we know that following Jesus was a dangerous enterprise. Eventually, he was crucified. And we like to blame the disciples for running. But let's be honest, if they didn't run, there would have been more than three crosses. And it was a dangerous enterprise. And so there was, there was, these, there was these challenges from without. Fightings and fears without. But the parable goes on to talk about having no root in oneself. A shallow and superficial commitment to Christ Jesus. Which is not rooted It goes on to talk about the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life distracting. Distracting us as we live this life of faith. Perhaps these disciples were thinking of the cares and riches and pleasures of this life as Jesus talked to them about eating and drinking of him and this radical reorientation of their selves toward him 
But what about the family business? Well, by now I should probably be getting home because I promised so-and-so in the village I would do this or that. I can't just follow Jesus at any cost, can I? Uncertainty, sinful inclinations even, away from Jesus. Fightings and fears, not only without, but also within. And so here we are. Jesus is putting before them the life of faith. Put your effort here, Jesus says. Ah, but fightings and fears, within, without. Many a conflict, many a doubt. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Some of the so-called disciples did not want better bread enough to embrace the life of faith. They were not prepared to put in the work. Others did want better bread enough to embrace the life of faith. And they were prepared to put in the work. Jesus turns to the twelve and says to them, Do you want to go away as well? And apparently the force of this in the Greek is, Surely you also don't want to go away from me, do you? It's a rhetorical question. Listen to Peter's answer here. To whom shall we go? To whom Shall we go? I don't think that this is the expression of undaunted enthusiasm. This was a low point, earthly speaking, humanly speaking, in Jesus' ministry. We get the impression that the vast majority of the crowd here dissipated, and most left. It was, that's the way the passage reads. It's not like there was a small defection. It's like, it was so drastic that Jesus turns to the twelve and says, Surely you also don't want to leave me now too, do you? Peter says, To whom shall we go? I don't believe that this is an expression of undaunted enthusiasm. Like, no, of course not, Jesus. We're in this. We, we get it. I think that this is more like the statement of an athlete who shows up for a workout at 4 a.m. And says it was all I could do to get out of bed. But what else could I do if I want to win? Or a mother in labor who says, what else can I do? If I want to bring this child into the world, stop pushing? Sometimes, even we who have truly, genuinely eaten and drunk of Christ savingly, who have experienced the new birth of John chapter 3, sometimes, even we almost want to stop eating and drinking of Christ. 
But when we pause to consider it, it's like, well, what else could we do? Where else could we go? To whom shall we go? Can anyone else save our souls? Is there anything else or anyone else worth living for? We realize, what does it profit a man to gain the world and yet lose his soul? And we know it. We know we could defect. And we know that this world could be more comfortable for us. We know that if we leave with the crowds, we won't have to bear the ostracization that belongs to God's people. The isolation, the scorn that belongs to God's people. We know that if we defect with the majority, we know that we may give attention to the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life. We know that we can focus a little bit more on the family business. We know that we can make a little bit more money. Increase those riches. We know that we may not taste of Christ, but taste of the fleeting pleasures of sin, as Hebrews 11 calls them. We we know that we may eat and we may drink, so to speak, of the delicacies of Egypt, instead of being mistreated with God's people, as Moses declined to do. We know that if we defect, we won't have to battle all those fightings and fears within, without, that make the Christian life of faith so difficult. But we also know that Jesus has the words of eternal life. And we have come to believe that Jesus is the Holy One of God. And that should we defect and gain the world, but lose our souls, it will profit us nothing. We know that nothing else is bread. There is no serum of eternal youth. And vitality, there is no holy grail. We know that apart from Jesus, time will do its work and gravity will do its work, and the disease and decay of our bodies will do its work, and we know that we will end up in a box in the ground or incinerated, and we know that our body and our soul will be separated. And our soul will go ahead of our bodies into the place of eternal torment where our soul, where our bodies, pardon me, will join our souls later at the resurrection of the just and the unjust. And we know that it will profit us nothing. And so we 
like Peter in those moments might voice something like this to whom shall we go where else are we going to go what else are we going to do This is the sense in which we sing, All I have is Christ. All I have is Christ. Or all we have, all we need, all we want is you. Obviously, we understand in a temporal sense we have families and we have jobs, and you know, we're not saying we don't need. Our families, or we don't want our families. We're not saying we don't need transportation to work. We're not, that's not what we're confessing when we sing, All I have is Christ. That's not what we're confessing when we sing, All we have, all we need, all we want is you. We're confessing that ultimately there is no one else to go to, there is no other bread. There is nothing else and no one else that can give us life. We're confessing that Jesus Christ and all that we are in Him and all that we have in Him, including communion with the Father and the Spirit. It's not an anti-Trinitarian confession to say all we have is Christ. It's a confession of His mediatorial work and sufficiency and His exclusive, the exclusivity of His mediatorial work that there is one mediator. There are no other choices. All we have is Christ. All we need is Christ. All we want is Christ. This is the sense in which we sing those hymns. To whom else shall we go? I'm a fan of American football. Using the timekeeping system of that game. The disciples are putting in fourth quarter effort here. For real football, that is soccer fans, I admit that makes a lot more sense to call that game football, doesn't it? For real football fans, soccer fans, we might say that the disciples are putting in late second half effort or stoppage time effort here. They're digging deep at a time when it's hard to follow Jesus. This is hours into labor, bringing forth a child effort. The disciples are digging deep here in this passage. To whom else shall we go? The disciples are therefore worthy of emulation here, not because their response is ideal. But what else would weak, struggling believers do? I think we can all agree 
it's best and ideal to have strong and unwavering faith. I think we can all agree that ideally we would never find it hard to follow Jesus. I think we can all agree that if we can just go along strong, victorious, triumphant, as many would lead us to believe is the nature of the Christian life, that would be nice. But if you've been a Christian for longer than a month, then you realize that's not the way the Christian life is. Most of us can look back probably to when we were first converted and there was a fire and there was a passion and there was a zeal. And I, I don't think, again, if you've been a Christian for longer than a month, I don't think anyone would say that that same level of intensity and zeal has continued unabated without ebbs and flows for the entirety of your Christian life. And that you've never felt weak. You've never struggled in the faith. You've never looked at the cost and felt a knot in your stomach about it. Or felt your knees knock because of the cost that eventually sinks in when you you go maybe and make a large purchase but you haven't entirely thought it through and you begin to crunch the numbers and you realize this is going to put a lot of strain for a while on the family budget And you were so excited when you brought it home, but now it's sinking in, the commitment that you've made. Sometimes this is what it feels like following Jesus. And we grow weak, and we struggle. And there's fightings and fears within, without. There is the opposition of the enemy. We fight not against flesh and blood. The enemy of our souls prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. There is ostracization and opposition from other people external to us. But there is also our own sinful inclinations and our own misgivings and our own doubts and we struggle. Ideally it would not be so, but in reality it is so. And when we get there, to those points and in those places, the disciples here are worthy of our emulation. Not because their response is ideal, but what else would weak and struggling believers do? But cry out to our Christ, our mediator, our savior, to whom else shall we go? What else are we going to do? Where else are we going to go? What am I going to do? Sleep in every Sunday from now on? Just call it quits? Give away my Bible? Donate it to some charity? Stop praying? Tell myself it's not real? It's of no consequence whether I persevere or don't. What what am I going to do? Indulge in the fleeting pleasures of sin? Drink? 
drugs, money, ambition, sex. For how long? How satisfying are those things going to be in the end? And what am I going to do when I'm old? What am I going to do when I'm on my deathbed? Am I going to look back and say, that was when I finally started to live? No. You're going to look back and realize, I never should have left. And you know it. So as you pause and consider it, the options in front of you. Jesus, to whom shall I go? What else am I going to do? Where else, where else am I going to be? Where would I find myself but trusting in you? Taking hold of you. Eating your flesh, drinking your blood, so to speak. Believing in you. You are the bread of life. We need to determinedly pursue the better bread. We must determinedly persevere in faith in Jesus Christ. Knowing that only He and not earthly bread gives true life. The birds of the air that come and steal the seed from the path, the weeds that grow up around it, the thorns, the shallow soil are ever-present dangers that we must guard our souls against. Satan and his opposition to us, the rootlessness of our own souls, the distraction of the cares and riches and pleasures of life. We must take care, as Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. We must hear and we must heed this description of the perils as we go along in the Christian life. We must hear and we must heed. And for those who hear and heed and guard against these things and persevere in the faith, eating and drinking of Christ every day, the effort will be worth it. The eternal life already given you in seed form. Whoever believes is not condemned, but he has passed. Past tense. He has passed from death to life. You have eternal life. Believer in Christ Jesus. In seed form. And that seed will mature into a never-ending life in a resurrected body with God in the new heavens and in the new earth. We could never have earned it It's all of grace. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Jesus paid it all. He himself cried from the cross, It is finished. 
The righteousness that we owed to God, Christ offered up as our mediator on our behalf. The death that we deserved, Christ bore in Himself on the cross on our behalf. He rose from the dead and it is by grace that He will raise from the dead in like fashion all who believe in Him. It's all of grace. You never could have earned it. But the true embrace of Christ in faith takes serious effort in the beginning and all the way through. But that's the kind of effort that makes sense, isn't it? Rather than settling for lesser bread, perishable bread which only gives temporal life, as Jesus said, instead... Work for the bread that endures to eternal life. Put your effort there. It's worth it to work for that better bread. Don't walk away. Don't turn back to no longer walk with Jesus. Make the words of Peter your own. Where else? To whom else shall we go? What else are we supposed to do? We can't and won't be satisfied with lesser bread. We want you, Jesus, the bread of life. We need to determinedly pursue that better bread. Determinedly persevere in faith in Jesus Christ. Knowing that only He gives true life.